0: All right, church, well, a real joy to be able to worship our Lord and Savior with you all this morning. You guys sounded fantastic, all right? Good job. Uh, We are, as a church, walking through the book of Acts together. This morning, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 18, starting in verses, uh, actually, verse 18, we'll read through 19.7. As you're turning there, just a couple of words uh, by way of introduction. We are following Paul's journey, his missionary journey. And this is the story, essentially, of how the living and exalted Jesus is spreading his kingdom across the globe. That's essentially what the book of Acts is all about, how King Jesus is spreading his kingdom across the world. And this is a kingdom that is full of light. It's a kingdom full of truth, of grace, of love, of justice and power and forgiveness. And he wants to share it with others. And as we see this kingdom spreading, we see that the king specifically welcomes all kinds of people. I don't know about you, but so far as I've been reading the book of Acts, this has been a huge encouragement for me. The king, King Jesus himself welcomes all kinds of people, those who are broken, who are needy, Those who are grieving, who are sick, rejected, and in a place of discouragement and frustration, King Jesus welcomes them. But not just that, we've also seen that King Jesus welcomes them into his presence, and he transforms them. He offers them the promise of newness of life. He doesn't leave them where they're at in their place of discouragement, but he moves them. Last week, as we considered how he gave a word to a weary heart and provided encouragement for someone who was discouraged, King Jesus welcomes all kinds of people and then changes those people. But just when you think the story couldn't get any better, you'd be wrong. Because the other thing that we're learning is Jesus welcomes all kinds of people. He transforms all kinds of people and then in his divine wisdom, he uses those kinds of people to advance his purposes across the globe. He enlists them into his service and assigns them with the greatest task of all. Invites them to join him on the incredible journey of spreading the good news. The good news that they have discovered to the world around them. That's essentially what we're seeing Jesus do in the book of Acts. Last week, like I said, we saw how um, this life, how he calls us to live, Um, can oftentimes lead to intense seasons of discouragement. If you are here this morning and you've been maybe walking with Jesus for some time, you would know that discouragement is a very, very real thing that the Christian faces and endures. Paul experienced this in the city of Corinth, uh, while we saw that some embraced the message, others mocked, reviled, and opposed what he had to say, and this led him to a place of discouragement. But in God's great kindness, God did not leave him there, but he, he met Paul, and he spoke a word to him that specifically encouraged his heart and, and essentially kept him going. Now, this week, we're going to go pick back up as Paul continues this mission and we're going to see some familiar faces, and we'll also meet some new individuals as well. So I'm going to read the, the passage in its entirety, and then we will dive right in. This is Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 18. You'd be helped if you have a copy of God's word in front of you. The, the words will be on the screen initially, but then, um, then they won't be, all right? So as, we're, as I'm preaching from it, just have a copy and open in your hands, all right? You'll be helped that way. Starting in verse 18 is what it says. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow, and he came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills and he set sail for Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he had wished to cross to Achaia, the the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, "No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit." And he said, "Into what then were you baptized?" They said, "Into John's baptism." And Paul said, "John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him—that is, Jesus." On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of our Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, you'll notice as we look at the passage this morning, it kind of breaks down into three different sections. The first section, verses 18 to 23, is essentially a travelogue showing how Paul ended up from Corinth to Antioch, dropping off Priscilla and Aquila along the way eventually making his way back through Galatia and Phrygia. In our time today, however, we're going to focus on sort of the, the next two scenes that follow. Essentially what happens in 18 to 23, we've seen so far, Luke has taken like five chapters to explain. And then all of a sudden, just a few verses, he says a few things. So I think what Luke wants us to do is to direct our attention here this morning, just for the sake of time. And as we look at these two scenes, the scenes that follow in verses 24 through the end of 18 and the beginning of 19 through verses 7, we'll see that there are a number of things that connect these two scenes together, Another number of reasons why these two scenes are connected. The first is they're connected by means of place. Both scenes take place in the city of Ephesus. In verse 24, we're introduced to a, a Jew named Apollos who we're told was in Ephesus, Preaching and doing ministry. And then in chapter 19, we learn that Apollos was at Corinth. While he was at Corinth, Paul then comes to Ephesus. So these two scenes are linked because they happen in the same place. Another reason why they're linked is because they both sort of describe and shed light on the unique and specific ministry of Apollos himself. Both teach us about the focus and the effects of Apollos' Apollos's ministry. The first scene shows us the focus and the nature, as it were, of his ministry. And in the second scene, we learn a little bit about his influence, how Apollos impacted those who came underneath his tutelage. But the main thing that connects scene one and scene two, the thing that links these two scenes together most significantly is that in both instances, what we discover are individuals who have only gone so far spiritually. Both scenes are linked because there seems to be individuals whose spiritual progression or growth has sort of come to a halt. They likely both had good handle on some biblical truths. They've even served. These are groups, individuals who even served and ministered in a variety of different contexts and aspects. Yet, they had both become stuck spiritually, it seems. In other words, in both groups, in both scenes, there appears to be something lacking. They, they have stopped at a point where they were baptized In John, but had not gone beyond the ministry of John the Baptist and deeper into the fullness of the gospel as it is in Jesus Christ. There are spiritually stuck people in both scenes. Now, many of us are here today and you might be able to relate to this on one level or another. Perhaps you can even today relate to this passage. It it reveals to us that while we are maybe have started off on the right foot. That there are different levels of spiritual growth that God would have for us. And what God wants us to do as followers of Jesus is to plunge ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper into who Jesus is. But the reality of stuckness still exists. It still exists. A number of years ago, uh, I got a call. I was at work one day, and this was a long time ago got a call from my wife, a frantic call. Now, in our house, usually, I mean, my rule of thumb is if I'm in a meeting or if I'm doing something and I get one call and I can't answer the phone, this might even be before, I don't, I don't want to give it away too much as to who, I don't want you to know who I'm talking about. So I'm trying to reveal that. But, but she, she reached out once, I didn't answer the phone because I was in a meeting, saw a second phone call come, I thought, okay, I better take this, it was immediately afterwards. So I, I answered the phone and she was completely frantic and very, very concerned. She said, "I need you to come home right now." And I was like, "What? What is happening? What's happening?" And as she told me what the crisis was, in some ways, I I thought maybe it was a joke at first. Um, we have at that time we had a, a particular child who loved to be in what's called a jumperoo. Do you guys know what a jumperoo is? It's uh, grandparents do, maybe parents do, but it's like a little contraption. Like it's not like a I don't even know how to describe it. It's like a it's like a bouncy thing that a little child sits in, all right? Like maybe a 1-year-old or a 2-year-old who can't really walk necessarily. They kind of just sit in this thing and they their feet kind of just touch the bottom of the ground and they sort of just just like they jump like this. It's up and down, right? And there's one particular child of ours who just loved the jumperoo. In our house, we didn't need a babysitter. We just needed the jumperoo. Just put this individual in the jumperoo and they were good to go for a while, all right? Easily occupied and well-entertained with the Jumperoo. Well, this day, the crisis was that this child had gotten stuck in the Jumperoo. And it wasn't, I could tell, now my wife would not, I mean, she's a very competent and capable individual. She's able to, you know, get them out of the Jumperoo if it wasn't a serious thing. However, she had been trying and trying and trying, and she was terrified that something could actually, like maybe blood circulation, it was tight, it was a bad situation. And she called me to come home and to help dislodge him. Oh, I just gave away the gender, sorry. <laughs> it's just so hard not to do that. To dislodge said child from the Jumperoo. So I, I raced all my, I don't know how long they had been in there, but they had been in there a long time. And the fear, I think, was warranted. Because if that individual had not gotten out of the Jumperoo, if they had not gotten unstuck, they would have either been unable to grow or Looked ridiculous as they did. It was a significant problem, and it needed immediate attention. Now, luckily, I'm glad to report, said child has been, you know, since dislodged, unstuck from the jumperoo. You've probably noticed. I haven't seen a jumperoo walking around the hallways of the church lately. Okay. Here's the deal. Getting stuck spiritually is a problem. It's a very, very real possibility. And it is a significant problem to the people of God. What we'll discover in our text as we look at these two different scenes, God wants us to discover and enjoy the fullness of Christ for ourselves as he has provided for us the resources to do just that. God does not want you this morning to stay stuck. And good news for us, he's given us precisely what we need. That we can go on and grow in our faith in Jesus. Now, here's the deal. As you might think of what are those resources, how does God do this? How does God allow us to go beyond the point of stuckness? Well, I'll give you a hint, and you might see it in our mission statement on our website. The truth of the matter is, it takes a whole church to form whole disciples. What we want to see happen here at Parkview East is that God would be glorified as we make disciples of each other and of our community. And in order for that to happen, he enlists the help in the service of the entire congregation. And that's what we'll see just as we walk through this text. Scene one, Apollos in Ephesus. First thing that we notice about Apollos as we read through the text is that he is an incredibly impressive individual. He has an impressive resume. He's from Alexandria. This is northern Africa, the Egyptian center of learning sort of for the ancient world. In this city, there would have been a huge Jewish population at the time. This would have been the birthplace of the Septuagint. It was home to some great thinkers and scholars that were contemporaries of Jesus. It was home to the greatest library in the world. It was a great place to be from. And that's where Apollos is from. We also learn, as we learn about him, is that he was an eloquent man. He was a man who was strong in speech, likely a student in the line of Aristotle. He was the, the type of one that could speak, and when he did, he would hold your attention. He was also, we learn, competent in the scriptures. He was instructed, as it were, in the way of the Lord. He was a man who knew his way around his Bible. He understood scripture. He was also, it goes on to say, Luke tells us, fervent in spirit. The language would say he was full of, of spirit. So as he spoke, now this is what made him such an effective preacher. As he spoke, he had the ability to communicate. He had the knowledge in his head to communicate stuff that was important. And when he did, he could speak in such a way that power and passion filled his speech. I mean, he was an effective preacher. He spoke and taught accurately. He had a lot of good stuff to say. He was spot on about it. He was a man who was incredibly gifted. He was the type of individual that if you were to start a ministry, if you were to plant a church, you would want Apollos on your side. You'd want him on your team. He was impressive. But the other thing that we learn about Apollos is not just was he impressive, he was also incomplete. He was an impressive individual, to be sure of it, but he was also spiritually immature. He was stuck. He was stuck. We're told that he was doing ministry that he was as he was, that he was quickly noticed. Priscilla and Aquila, we got introduced to them last week. They show up on the scene. Remember their fellow tent makers who had met Paul in Corinth and when they had joined him in ministry, they they follow him to Ephesus and Paul leaves them there. Shortly after arrival, they they encounter Apollos doing his thing, preaching the word. He's a gifted preacher, preacher. He immediately catches their attention. He's in the synagogue speaking boldly. And as they're listening to them, they begin to see and understand that something about his teaching is, well, off. There's something off about it. I can just imagine sort of how the scene plays out. Apollo standing before the crowd, eyes of those listening wide open as they hear the words rolling off of his tongue. And about this great prophet who who came, specifically John the Baptist and all that he said and what he meant. After he's finished, the crowd begins to scatter and Priscilla... Approaches him, quietly, alone, and asks what his plans are for lunch. <laughs> Why don't you come on over, Apollos? <laughs> Got a nice spread. Sit down with me and my husband. Let's, let's get to know one another. So, Apollos follows him home. They break bread. They have fellowship. And they began to open up the reality of the riches of Jesus Christ himself. They become his instructors. They they point him to the glory of Jesus Christ. And there, in their home, Apollos discovers for himself the real Jesus. The light begins to shine on his soul. Now his eyes are wide open to the reality of the risen Christ. And it's at this time, I believe, that he becomes a follower of Jesus. this is amazing. This is amazing. This is an awesome testimony. This is, this is phenomenal in so many ways. Why, why, would you say, why, why would I say that it's now that he becomes, this is an area that some scholars sort of debate, was he a Christian before and just didn't quite spiritually have it all together? Was he really not a follower of Jesus? I think he wasn't a follower of Jesus, specifically because, Luke tells us, he only knew the baptism of John, now, that could mean a couple of things. I think it means that Apollos had knowledge of the plan of God up to the point of John the Baptist, but was not aware that the Messiah who John had come to point to, who John had come to herald, had already come, and his name was Jesus. The reason I think this is because of the way in which Priscilla and Aquila explain the gospel to him. They explain it more accurately. And at the end of the scene, Luke tells us that now he goes and shows the Jews that the Messiah was Jesus. He opens up the scripture and what Luke says that's unique about his message at the end that he doesn't say at the beginning is he shows them throughout the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, that they were anticipating coming. Then he would go on to Corinth and build the foundation that Paul had laid. So that at the time that Paul would write to the church of Corinth, he would say, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Isn't it amazing as we think about Apollos that a man who was so impressive, that had, was such a gift, who was so knowledgeable, could also have such significant needs? Teaches for us a couple lessons. First scene. Lesson number one. Ministry success is not proof of saving grace. What do we learn as we look at Apollos' life? Ministry success is not proof of saving grace. Apollos seems to be quite the minister. Can can sure draw a crowd. People are drawn to him on the surface. It appears as though he's doing the work. Yet he himself doesn't fully understand the grace of God the reality of Jesus. He hasn't received the new life in Christ. There's evidence of this this happening that oftentimes we can confuse ministry success with evidence of of saving grace, but Jesus says, don't do it because it it can be oftentimes very misleading. For example, he says in Matthew chapter 7, says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There will be many people that look like they're doing the work. They even seem to be successful when they do it, but who do not know Jesus. No shortage of examples of that in our day and age as well. Lesson number two. Knowledge of Scripture does not equal knowledge of God. Say it one more time. Knowledge of Scripture does not equal knowledge of God. When Apollos came to Ephesus, he was a learned man we're told, in the scriptures. He knew his Bible, even taught many things accurately, but he did not know experientially God himself. Didn't know him. This is a terrifying reality. Many of us can equate knowing. Now, do not take this to say, don't get to know your scriptures, all right? This is not an excuse for you not to have your moaning devotions, not to read through the Bible in a year. This is not an excuse for you not to do that. But don't confuse the two. Knowing your scriptures does not necessarily equal knowing your Jesus. You can know a lot about Jesus and not know Jesus. There are many people that I have met who have similar doctrinal convictions. They could be spot on biblically in theology, but they have not one ounce of evidence of God's grace at work in their life. This is a reality. It's a sad, terrifying reality. But don't be mistaken. It is a reality. Jesus himself tells us. There are people that can grow up in the church, that can go to a Christian school, that can have all the knowledge of the Bible put into their head but yet their lives and their hearts have not been transformed by the grace of God. They have not repented. They have not turned from Jesus and trusted him and him alone for the forgiveness of sins. There are individuals who did great work. John Wesley, baptized, confirmed, and ordained before he was converted. Thomas Chalmers, exact same thing. Knowledge and passion, while they are useful gifts, aren't enough For Christian ministry, we must know Christ and Christ crucified. Point number three it takes a whole church. It takes a whole church. As we consider and think about what we long to see God do in the midst of our church, throughout our community, as we desire for his kingdom to spread and transform Iowa City, it takes. A whole church. As we think about where you might this morning feel yourself a little spiritually stale, stagnant, or stuck, and you want to think, how do I move beyond? Answer, it takes a whole church. Priscilla and Aquila looked at Apollos And all his impressive resume, and they recognized that his spiritual immaturity was their problem. (laughs) They took responsibility for his stagnation. They invited him into their house. Let's grab a meal, let's have lunch, let's talk about Jesus, let's grow together in his grace. Now, it's interesting to note that the formula, when we first get introduced to these two characters, we're introduced to them as Aquila and Priscilla. As Luke tells them multiple times throughout the story of Acts, we'll see them appear Priscilla and Aquila from here on out. And I think there's a lot of folks who who believe that Priscilla was the one, maybe, who was really taking some of the initiative here in terms of approaching Apollos and just in ministry in general. And so all kinds of people. These are tent makers. These are not scholars. And in order for them to get through to Apollos, who could potentially see himself as maybe above reproach, obviously he doesn't, it requires from him a certain degree of humility to receive their instruction, her instruction, her correction, to receive their hospitality and their challenge in his life. And luckily, he receives it and applies it. Let's go on to scene two. We'll do sort of a similar thing. We'll look at the scene and then save some application for the end. Verse 1a, we're going to go on and it says that, told that Apollos, after this, goes to Corinth to build on the ministry that has already been established there by Paul. As he leaves, Paul comes back to Ephesus, just as he promised he would do in verse 21 of chapter 18. Now, we'll spend a little more time next week as we look at another really wild scene that happens in Ephesus, thinking specifically about that city in that context. So, say that for next week. But one thing that we notice is that upon Paul's arrival in Ephesus, he immediately identifies that there's a problem. There are a group of disciples... Now, I believe that when Luke uses the word disciples, he's not referring to disciples of Jesus, but rather disciples of Apollos. He encounters a group of disciples who I don't believe, much like Apollos at this point, have been converted yet. And he immediately sees them and is going to challenge them. He perceives that they lack ultimately, the reason why Paul says in verse 19, it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And immediately, I believe that one of the reasons why he's going to, to challenge them and question whether or not they've been converted and received new life in Christ is because there's something about this group of people that lack the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't sense the Holy Spirit is in their midst. He, he does not sense from them that they are dependent on or have experienced the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure what makes him suspicious that they haven't received it, but immediately he addresses the problem by asking them a question Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It's important to note that this is not, as some have argued, evidence of sort of a two-stage conversion experience. Stage one, repent and believe, and then some later date, down the road, stage two happens where there is a pouring out of the Holy Spirit. This is not an argument, as some would say, and specifically because of how that verse is structured, to support that that is how conversion works. Rather, this is Paul questioning the legitimacy of their conversion. Because the true evidence of saving grace is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And it is that which Paul detects is absent. And their response in verse 2, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, confirms Paul's suspicion. So what's his solution? Now, it's fascinating to observe that as Paul has identified the problem, his solution is not to sit them down... And provide for them a lesson steeped with doctrine, unpacking the truth and the significance of who the Holy Spirit is. That's not how he addresses the problem. Rather, he says to them, well, into what were you baptized? He doesn't take them aside and lead them a Bible study. Okay, this is who the Holy Spirit is. This is what his role is. This is what he does. He asks them a question. Well, then what? Then were you baptized? Have you really been savingly united to the Lord Jesus? It's essentially what he's asking. Baptism, after all, is the outward symbol of us being savingly united to the Lord Jesus. What baptism, then, did you receive? No, we, we have the response. We have only received John's baptism. That's what they said. And in verse 4, Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. His great concern is that they should not have, which it appears to be the case, stopped short of Jesus. If John the Baptist is, for you, a barrier, or, in their case, it seems like an end in and of itself then you are missing the very point of John's ministry. His ministry was to tell the people to believe in the one who would come after him, that is Jesus. It was the whole reason why John came was to be a signpost pointing them beyond himself to Jesus. Paul's great concern, you can see, is that the reality of their saving faith He's saying, did you not really believe in John the Baptist and what he said? He, after all, said, don't stop at me. When others asked him, are you the Messiah? He said, no, no. Are are you Elijah? John said, no, no. Well, when they asked him, what are you? He said, I am the voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. There is one coming after me whose shoes I'm not worthy to untie. He is the one who I point to. And when he came, John's response was, behold, the Lamb of God, he's the one who takes away the sins of the world. John's job was to point beyond himself to Jesus. And their problem is that they didn't catch the point. They didn't follow the sign. They stopped with John. And what does this mean for us? First thing it means is we must not stop short of Jesus Christ. The message that they believed was a message of conviction. They were convicted of their sin. But conviction of sin, while it is necessary, it is not enough. Imagine these 12 listening to John the Baptist who preached the message of repentance. There's no, they couldn't avoid being convicted of their sin. But it is possible, we see, to be convicted of sin and not converted. Case in point, it's, po- it's possible this morning that there are those in our midst this morning who feel, maybe as you read the Bible, Maybe if you come to church on a Sunday or you're on to the Christians, or, or just maybe throughout your week, feel conviction of sin. Feel, maybe you felt convicted this week. Maybe there's those in our midst this morning who feel like you're at a place in life where you need to see a change. Things aren't going the way you want them or the way, the way you thought they were going to go, and so you want to change things around. That is good, and it's necessary. But don't stop there. Do not stop short of Jesus Christ. What God ultimately wants for us, what he ultimately wants for you, is to bring you in his grace to Jesus And the Christian life is that of discovering who Jesus really is every single day. In Ephesians chapter 3, 8, Paul talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. This side of eternity, we are, if you're walking with Jesus, you are on a discovery mission every day to to reveal, to find, to discover for yourself who Jesus is. And and that's what spiritual growth looks like, going deeper and deeper into the truth of the real Jesus. This is a group of people who stop short of him. Don't do that. Second thing, what does it mean? Well, I think it shows us that it is the nature of ministry to produce people who are like you. The reason why these 12 disciples, individuals, had problems where the Holy Spirit and John the Baptist were concerned is because they were being taught by Apollos, who had similar, as we just saw in scene one, challenges, similar problems. Apollos reproduced his spiritual immaturity and completeness in these 12 individuals. And this is the nature of... Of ministry. If you have desire to serve in ministry in any way, shape, or form, what you essentially are doing is saying, follow me. Now, what Paul encourages us to do is we're a, a necessary ingredient in serving in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 is say, follow me as I follow Jesus. And oftentimes, we can just think it's the first part. Just follow me but we have the ability to influence others and reproduce ourselves in other people. And on some level, this should sort of raise the bar, the the necessity for us to ensure that that we take our spiritual needs seriously, which brings me to the third point of application for the second scene. You can only take people as far spiritually as you yourself have gone. As you consider serving in some capacity. You can only take people as far spiritually as you have gone. Now, good thing that there are many other people here at this church who have different levels of maturity and gifts and strengths. And one of the reasons why it takes a whole church, but you can only take people as far as you have gone. Apollos was a learned man, Alexandrian, mighty in the scriptures, fervent in spirit, eloquent in speech, bold in his preaching, yet he was unable to take his students, beyond where he himself had gone. Not a step further. If you aspire to influence others for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it shows to us you must prioritize your own spiritual growth. One of the greatest things that you can do if you want to influence others for Jesus is make sure that you yourself are daily being renewed, daily being encouraged in his word, by his spirit, through his power, that you yourself are not neglecting your own soul. Oftentimes, if you've served in any capacity, you may, and this is totally normal, we can be tempted to think that it's all on what we do, all on what we've accomplished, all on what we know. And we can just think that it's just about pouring out and pouring out and pouring out And if that's the case, what we'll find ourselves is completely empty, stagnant, and stuck ourselves. If you want to make an influence for Jesus, one of the greatest things that you can do is regularly spend time with Jesus. A number of years ago, there was a group of college students who were um, sort of discovering the spot ministry. This was before Faith Academy. This was a long time ago. A couple of college students who came down for a visit one time, and they really loved what was happening here. At that point, it was just an outreach. I think it was even happening on a Sunday morning. And so it was just youth children that were here learning Jesus, about Jesus, playing games in the gym, having some food. And there was a group of college students who came down and thought, wow, this is awesome. I can make a difference. This is a place where I can get involved. I can serve other people. And so for for a while, there's a big crop of college students, a lot of athletes from the university who are coming down here serving on a regular basis. They came with wonderful intent to serve, to give, to be used, and to make an influence. And as they stuck around and hung in there, what was awesome to see was that there was a number of them that began to realize as they sat in the Bible lessons, as they were in a small group opening up God's word, there was a number of them that realized they can only take the students so far because they themselves haven't gone far enough yet. There's, there's a couple of them that actually gave their life to Jesus. It started by serving Jesus. Now, what is amazing is that you see sort of this hand-in-hand thing. What happens is if you start to serve Jesus, it should increase your desire to know Jesus. It should reveal to you your, your incompleteness, your immaturity. What are the questions that people are asking me? I don't know the answers to. And what can often do is you're serving Jesus can lead you to wanting to know him more. And then as you begin to discover and learn and grow in these glorious riches of who Jesus is, then it should cause you to want to share them with others. And so it's this wonderful cycle. It's not a this or a that. Should I grow and learn about Jesus or should I give my life to serving Jesus? He's uniquely wired, this thing, that they go hand in hand. They feed each other. So do not neglect your own soul in service of the King. Now, in closing, if you're here today feeling discouraged in your growth, maybe you, like my child years ago, feel stuck. Not in a jumparoo, but maybe just in your spiritual walk with Jesus. There's good news. The longing, if you've identified that, that's step one, <laughs> that you're stuck. Praise God for that. Secondly, if you, if you long to go beyond where you are right now, that's worthy of celebration and praise as well. That's a demonstration of God's spirit either at work in you or his spirit at work on you. Another thing you can take heart in is you're likely not alone. Oftentimes, we can feel like we've got to walk through those doors every Sunday acting as if we've got it all together. Well, the truth is, we come in this door oftentimes exhausted, frustrated, discouraged, and stuck. You're in good company. Another reason why you can take heart this morning is because God has, in his grace, given us precisely the resources that we need to move one another beyond, plunge each other deeper and deeper into who Jesus is. There are others around here who would love the opportunity to do just that with you. And you can help others as well. One of the things that Pastor Thomas, excuse me, is working at community groups is he's got a a kind of a set of questions. Sean, you could put those up there, I think, if you've got them in the computer. Set of questions, which are sort of related to the sermon every Sunday. You can see them up there. And I believe these are community group leaders available in your app, so you you don't need to write them down. They should be in the Church Center app. Um, But these are sort of just three basic questions That would be great. I think they're going to be up here on Sunday mornings, just on the on the on the backdrop, and so um, this would be a great way, just even on Sunday mornings, to discuss and to ask if you're milling around. One of the things I love about East Campus is that we're—it's hard to leave sometimes. That's a good thing. Uh, But if you want to get to know somebody and you want to encourage them deeper in their relationship with Jesus, this is a great place to start. Okay. Um, Additionally, community groups. These are great questions that can be asked in community groups with the intended purpose of leading and helping one another take a step closer to Jesus, which is essentially, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I get so excited about what, what spiritual growth looks like is we all have the same goal. There's not sort of different levels of spiritual maturity and we all have different steps and different paths. Rather, every single one of us is on the exact same journey and our goal is precisely the same, to take our next step to Jesus. For some of us, that means entering into his family. For some of us, that means reading our Bible regularly or praying and trusting in him in certain areas of our life. Every one of us has the same goal, taking the next step to Jesus. And so we want to be the type of church that, just like these individuals that we saw this morning, look around and we see your discouragement, your stuckness, your incompleteness or immaturity as my problem. And I want you to do that for me as well. Because it takes a whole church to form whole disciples. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. And um, just for the example, Lord, that we see here of, of what healthy correction and spiritual growth looks like. Lord, thank you that you have come to us and you offer yourself to us. You give yourself freely to us, Lord, and that all we have to do is receive you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be the type of church that, that does take one another's spiritual incompleteness as our own problem. Thank you that you've resourced us well to be the people that you have made us to be. Amen.